The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. If you've ever been frustrated with your turf grass, then this episode is for you. We talk with Dr. Clint Waltz about solutions to your frustrations. We also look into research practices and efforts in lowering the inputs needed for successful turf grass. How turf grass eco-services bring good things to our environment. We also talk about the benefits and hurdles to auto mowing. Dr. Waltz has statewide responsibilities in all areas of turf grass management, including turf grass water use and conservation. Clint is published in scientific journals and makes regular contributions to the newsletters of the state's trade associations. Furthermore, he makes numerous presentations to a range of turf grass professionals, county extension agents, and homeowner groups. This is episode 109, Healthy Turf Grass Agronomics, with Dr. Clint Waltz on the Garden Question Podcast. This is an encore presentation and a remix of episode 49. Clint, we're transitioning from winter to spring. How does the seasonal transition impact turf grass? The transition periods for our warm season grasses are critical. Here we are going from winter to spring, and our warm season grasses are moving from state of being dormant to active growth. It's a time of year where the air temperatures are beginning to fluctuate. It's hard to say at this point as to how things are going to go when it comes to rainfall. There are years where we can have dry springs, and that can affect transition as well. The problem we have with that is that our warm season grasses store carbohydrates in their rhizomes and stolons, and we start to deplete those carbohydrates with these periodic green up and then back into dormancy, green up and back into dormancy. So the question becomes is how many stored reserves do they have, and what's that going to do when weather conditions are finally conducive for prolonged green up and, and sustained growth? That's what's got me probably a little more concerned this year is just how much of this greening we've had at periodic points. When it finally does get warm and stay warm, is there enough gas in the tank to get our warm season grasses like Bermuda grass, Zoysia grass, centipede grass, St. Augustine grass, get them going and keep them going? Is there anything that we can do to prepare for those seasonal changes? Unfortunately, really not. Biggest thing is good, proper agronomics when the grass is actively growing. Once we do get our grasses growing this coming spring and summer, mowing at the proper height, fertilizing correctly, those types of things will go a long way to helping us grow a healthy stand that permits us to transition those periods or manage those transitional periods in the fall and in the spring of the year. Some folks believe turf grass is a wonderful thing, while others, I believe, would probably just want to banish it from the earth. What are your thoughts? <laughs> I, I hear a lot of those too. And through a 20 plus year career, I've certainly known turf to be on the point of the spear more than once with some folks. The way I see it is it serves many goods. Most landscapes involve a little bit of turf and it's going to include some trees and ornamentals and hopefully some annuals and perennials. And it'll be kind of a comprehensive landscape in many cases. And turf is just part of that. But it also serves some ecosystem services out there. And that's kind of one of those funky 
scientific ecological terms where what we're saying there is turf actually does a good thing for the environment. It has a deep fibrous root system, so it permits water to infiltrate into our soil and help us recharge some of those deep soil water reserves prevent soil erosion. So that's soil that doesn't make its way into storm sewers and eventually into creeks or ponds or rivers and sedimentation issues and things like that. And then there's other studies out there that show that reduces heat effect within cities and sequesters carbon. And of course, it's a plant, so it's going to generate some oxygen and that type of thing too. Turf has its place in the environment out there. It's a nice thing to recreate on. People ask me, turf, does that involve forages and things like that? I tell folks, I'm here to recreate the world. I don't feed the world. So turf grass doesn't have anything to do with cows, goats, and horses. We do recreate the world and we offer surface for you to enjoy at your home lawn or uh, athletic fields, park and recs, as well as the game of golf. Two major sporting events that are coming up in the state here real soon, and that's with the world champion Atlanta Braves hopefully taking the field again, and then the Masters Golf Tournament. I think that's perfection. At least it appears to me from the distance. Is that unrealistic expectations for us as homeowners or turf growers? I think you bring up the point there what the expectations are. And I think the average homeowner, yes, those probably are unrealistic expectations for the average lawn. You do have to remember that Truist Park, as well as Augusta National and, and every other golf course that we have here in the state of Georgia, those are maintained and managed by educated professionals that are doing it every day. And that's their job is to be on those facilities every day. They're there to provide a high level of expectation and performance from those surfaces. And that's not what the average homeowner should do. It's okay to have aspirational goals and go out and work hard. But at the same time, too, most folks don't have that kind of opportunity and time to put into a home lawns. But that doesn't mean that the basic agronomics that our professionals are employing, that the average homeowner can't do that, have as an attractive lawn as possible that performs as it should with reasonable amount of inputs that needed for that. What would be the realistic expectations for us as a homeowner or even a commercial property to really get started in having a turf area? Well, if we're starting with new soil in a new lawn, I often say there's really kind of two things that we can do that will solve probably about 70, 80% of our turf problems out there. First one is site preparation. So do a good job with site prep on it. That typically entails for us in the state of Georgia across the Southeast is tilling, possibly even working in organic matter. That tilling operation is something that's too often overlooked and not appreciated what the benefit there is. Folks will ask me, well, how deep do I till? Well, one inch is better than none, and two is better than one, and three is better than two, and four is better than three. So till as deep as possible, break that soil up as much as possible, remove as much debris, rocks, construction, trash. You'd be surprised at some of the stuff I've pushed a soil probe into. I've pulled out foam insulation and shingles and things like that I've hit in the past. Those aren't things that provide good deep root zones for our grass. And that's the objective of the site prep and the tilling is such that when we sod or seed our lawn is that they can grow deep root systems that will wind up kind of managing some of those stress periods, whether it's the heat of summer or whether it's developing deep rhizomes and carbohydrate reserves to be able to come out of dormancy in the springs. Site preparation is absolutely one of those things that's underdone and highly critical. Regardless of our soils in the state of Georgia, whether you're South Georgia and more of our coastal plain sandy soils or North Georgia and our clay soils, adding some organic matter back into and actually tilling that in, not just across the top, but till that in of that upper three to four inches will go a long way towards having a five, six, ten year sustainable lawn out there. So that's the number one thing. 
the number two thing I said is there's two things we can do to, to get about 70, 80 percent of it right. The second thing is right plant, right place. Choose the right grass species for your site and your location. So understand the grass species and make sure you put the right plant in the right place. Example I give is two things will grow in the face of the sun. That's kudzu and Bermuda grass. So if you've got a nice sunny location, then Bermuda grass may be an option as far as it goes with inputs that go into it. Bermuda grass is fairly low. But if you have a fairly shady location or you have a normal lawn that's got some trees and a building shade and that type of thing, then Bermuda grass may not be the right plant to put in that location and on that place. And something like zoysia grass or St. Augustine grass or tall fescue may be a better selection. If site preparation is done correctly and then you put the right plant in the right place with good selection of right species or even cultivar of turf grass, we're going to solve about 70, 80 percent of our turf related issues moving forward. What can we do for the other 20, 30 percent? The other 20 percent kind of come into stress factors. Either those transitioning into dormancy or transitioning out of dormancy can be part of it. The other is pest management. So having diseases and weeds and insects, those types of things, kind of what the other is. Many times in turf, we take the adage of the best defense is a strong offense. So if we can grow our grass well and have a good, strong stand of turf, then we don't have as much of those other things to worry about. And that's why if we put the right plant in the right place and we do a good job of getting as deep a root system as possible, then some of those other things aren't quite as much of a problem, whether they're the biotic factors or the abiotic factors that go into turf. The fertility and irrigation is part of the other agronomic sides of things. And of course, then there's mowing as well. Say biotic and ambiotic. Could you just tell us what that is? Sure. The biotic factors would be things that are biological. So diseases, weed, insects, those types of things that may wind up producing our stands. The abiotic factors would be things like climate or shade, whether that's from tree shade or from building shade, drought stress, that would be abiotic on it. Those would be the things that would affect turf and all plants, really. Often I see where house shade plays a big part in Bermuda grass failing. Would it be better to turn those into bed areas where you have a consistent shade? Actually, I recommend that quite regularly. Uh, There's times where I show up in problem-solving situations, and typically the way this happens is I'll be brought in, and some of these newer constructions, there may be 10 or 12 foot between houses or apartment complexes or, or condos or what have you. They put Bermuda grass down, and it looks good for about two years, and then it starts to thin out gradually, and the next thing you know, you've got a muddy mess between the two of them after a few rainfall events. What's happened there is is that Bermuda grass that was grown out in the open sun in the sod field is brought in, and it's got those carbohydrate reserves, but it just doesn't get any sunlight to replenish those reserves, so it declines over time. Generally, that takes two to three, sometimes four years, depending on how much sunshine gets in there on some of that. Eventually, the grass just gives up. It doesn't have what it needs to sustain itself. Many times in those situations, I will recommend, let's put a bed in here, or the only thing you're going to look at here is some kind of a shade-tolerant ornamental or mulch. I try to be an advocate for the grass and look at the environment in which it's intended to be used. And if it's not a good environment, I'm not going to recommend a grass to set it up for failure. More often than not, people blame the grass for failure, not who made the selection, the human element part of it. In making a selection for a turf grass, what choices do we have in Georgia and the southeast? Throughout the southeast, warm season grasses are going to predominate. And our warm season species are the ones that grow during the warm times of the year. I tell folks, I say, we're not real creative. So grasses that grow during the warm times of the year, we refer to them as warm season species. And those that grow during the cool times of the year, we refer to as cool season species. 
it's actually a little more complex than that. It does involve plant physiology, and those two groups are different physiologically in how they handle carbon and photosynthesis. For us in the southeast, we can grow our warm season species. So things like Bermuda grass, centipede grass, St. Augustine grass, zoysia grass are our predominant lawn turf grass species. There's some ancillary ones out there like bahia grass in some areas or carpet grass in some areas. Those two, for example, aren't in real high production. I tend to focus on the ones that are the predominant grasses, have the qualities and characteristics that we look for in turf, and are also in commercial production. And then within the species, we have a number of cultivars or cultivated varieties of each one of those. For example, Bermuda grass, many people are probably very familiar with Tiffway 419 or 419 Bermuda grass, but we also have Tiff Tough out there. That's the newest release from the University of Georgia with improved water use efficiency to it. There's Tahoma 31. It also has improved water use efficiency, and that one's out of Oklahoma State Breeding Program. So those examples of like three Bermuda grasses that are commercially available for lawn uses as well as for professional uses on sports fields and golf courses. Just in the state of Georgia, we've got like 15 different zoysia grass cultivars that are commercially available with producers in the state. So there's a lot of genetic diversity within the zoysia grass species, and there's a lot of things that you can choose from when it comes to zoysia grasses. Leaf texture tends to be a large part of that. Leaf color tends to be a large part of the zoysia grass differences on those as well. There's a lot to choose from out there, and that's where things get really kind of muddy with many homeowners or even commercial lawn care folks is, which one do I choose and where? I enjoy the science, and part of my job, we're actually study those and understand those nuances of each cultivar. Is there a good reference find out and research that the average homeowner can determine which grass they'd like? Sure. I have a publication. It's an extension publication. discusses the grasses themselves, the species, and then we mentioned the the cultivars within it and, and a couple of the nuances amongst those. So it's not in great detail on those. If it was, it'd be fairly comprehensive and thick. And what I have learned is that much of today's society wants the YouTube video that's five to eight minutes long, not the longer versions. So trying to keep it short and sweet is hard for me to do. Yeah, speaking of short and sweet, this seems to be the time of the year that we see a lot of one-step solutions for perfect turf marketed in the media. Can you really expect it to be that easy? If it was, I wouldn't have a job. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not that easy. And yeah, I do wind up laughing at some of those, especially when you see these things out there. It's like the hose-in sprayers. Turf moose was the one, I, you know, like hair moose. Mm -hmm. It was turf. You see advertised, I've seen it on shelves at your big box retailers. Most of those are cool season species. And sure, you can go out there and spray it on the side of a cinder block, water it for three or four days and get germination and look like a chia pit. For us here in Georgia, give it May and June where it just kind of gets up in the 80s, low 90s for a day or three and it'll die off on you pretty quick. no, it's not that simple. It's it's not that easy. There is a reason that we have a turf grass management degree and program at the University of Georgia is to train students to be professionals in this industry and help educate them on the science of it and the management of turf grass. It's not that simple. Are we going to have plenty of sod to do all of our projects? The nice thing about us with turf is it's not like other commodity crops where you plant a corn seed, it comes up, and then you harvest it, and you got this one period of time where you're harvesting all your corn. With turf, we've got a constant state of regrowth. As we get into the summertime of the year, hopefully we're going to have a little more inventory as we get into June, July, and August than what we have right now because the grass will continue to grow. And it's not one harvest period like you have with other commodities out there. Sod prices are high. 
where we are right now with gas and transportation, freight rates are going to go up as well as others. One of the reasons we do the SOD survey is actually to help the industry practitioners out there. So as they're starting to plan and bid jobs and working with homeowners and property owners is that they have a good place to start is bidding those jobs. So our SOD survey, and you can find that on our website, www.georgiaturf.com. But that SOD survey gives our commercial lawn care folks a good place to start on as far as those bidding and pricing jobs out. Do you think we tend to overmanage our turf grasses? That's a bit of a loaded question. <laughs> Some folks do, yes. And then there's others out there that probably don't manage enough. There are times where I show up on lawns, again, for troubleshooting situations, or I've got somebody on a phone, and you can tell they're very passionate about it. They probably worry about some things that they don't need to and let the grass grow sometimes would, would be a good thing. And then you've got others where I show up at, and they want to know, can we get this back in shape? It's obvious it had been neglected for quite some time on it. So there's times where I see a tremendous amount of neglect. Can we get the grass back? And depending on the species and the growth habit and potential for it, sometimes the answer is yes. We need to change the agronomics, get the mowing height in the right spot, increase our fertility, make sure our irrigation system's working if we have one. If not, find some way of getting some water out there so it doesn't go under some drought stress in order to get it grow back. And there's other times where I understand, I'm glad you're using your lawn as a place to commune with nature and get out and do and be active and that kind of thing. But you don't always have to worry about things and maybe you don't fertilize as regular as you, you have been. And there's been a few people in situations through the years where I've had to try to get folks to pull the reins back a little bit. Overmanage it, it all depends on the situation. So there's just not a one solution for every lawn. It's not. And, you know, I think there's some perceptions out there. And that's where we've come in many times with water. Perception is, is the lawn has to be green. And that is the desired. Nobody ever calls me and says, Clint, I have the prettiest brown yard in the neighborhood. That just isn't the call I get. More often than not, it's my yard's dead. What went wrong on it? But the perception is that grass has to be green and we get into drought conditions and people want to start putting irrigation down. Certainly the policies that are out there encourage that when you get every other day opportunity to irrigate based on your address. Truth is, most of our grasses are pretty robust plants. They don't need near as much water as you want to put on them. If allowed to go into a little bit of drought, most all of our turf grasses will actually go into what we call a drought-induced dormancy. Biology takes over. They'll slow their growth, actually conserve resources waiting for favorable environmental conditions. For us here in the southeastern United States, it will rain again one day. You can certainly get into those periodic droughts where it may not get rain for 17, 21, 25 days. All it takes is a three-quarter inch thunder bumper in the afternoon, and many of our grasses respond pretty quickly after that. They're more robust, and they'll take more stress than we tend to put on them. We can put stress on it by overwatering, right? Absolutely. That's another problem we see out there sometimes, too, is over-irrigation. Many times for what I see on that is that works back into a drainage issue, is that the irrigation goes down and it sits. Most of our turf grasses don't like wet feet. You get them irrigating, keep that soil wet and keep it wet. That's when we'll set up for disease issues as well as the grass will thin out and that type of thing. Over-irrigation can be very much a problem as well. What is the best way to irrigate? Our adage in turf to irrigate is deep and infrequent. And there's a good bit of data out there to actually support that adage of trying to irrigate as deeply as possible. And that gets back to that site prep that I was talking about earlier. So if we can do the site prep such that our water moves in and we've got a soil volume that can hold water in the upper four, five, six inches, that can get us from one rainfall event to the other or through one drought event and still maintain acceptable commercial quality on our turf irrigation part right there of getting the right site preparation and then irrigating deep 
So getting it in as deep in that soil surface as possible is important. Those all interrelate to each other. I'd like to go back to what you were talking about earlier of adding organic material to your soil prep. What typically would you add to it? We've done several studies. We've looked at several different compost materials. One is ground up yard waste. That's worked very well. What we actually did on that one was we had three different rates, kind of a low, medium, and high on it. And I think that high rate was somewhere right around half a ton per thousand square feet, if I remember correctly. And this was incorporated in the upper three to four inches. So a thousand pounds per thousand square foot incorporated. And what we actually found there was that was so much organic matter, it retained maybe too much water. As a result, we had lower root density in some of those plots. And that was with over three different grasses. So that was Bermuda grass, zoysia grass, and centipede grass. And we saw a similar trend regardless of the grass species there. The mineral rate, which was somewhere, I think, between 500 and 700 pounds of organic matter over a thousand square foot area incorporated in the upper three to four inches, was where we saw our better improvement in moisture retention as well as rooting. And what we didn't do there was we didn't do any of the nutrient side on that one, but you would anticipate by increasing organic matter, we should wind up holding better nutrients in the soil as well. That's what we're seeing with it. Whether it's a clay soil of Piedmont in North Georgia or sandy soil in South Georgia, that's going to be a positive either way. In recycling, it sounds like to me you're recycling nutrients back into the soil. I know you said you didn't study the nutrient side of it, but adding that organic matter, I would think you're doing the nutrients back into it. How do the practices of mowing your grass and you're recycling the nutrients from the grass blades back into the turf areas? Sure. No, absolutely. And that's another thing that we advocate for the average homeowner is to recycle. Don't bag your clippings. Allow those clippings to fall back into the the turf canopy. They'll make their way into the canopy, down the soil, and then the soil microbial organisms that are there. It's an active living soil in a turf grass environment. Those soil microbes will break down that leaf tissue. When they do, it gets back into the basic elements of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, magnesium, calcium. that then get way back into the soil, can be taken up by the roots, assimilated back into the plant, and we make new shoots and leaves and roots and those kinds of things. The recycling is absolutely part of it. We encourage people to maintain what we refer to as the one-third mowing rule, where you take off no more than one-third of the leaf surface in any one single mowing. You start getting more than that, you start to overwhelm that soil micro activity, and you start heading towards some things like thatch development and that type of thing. Our historical or conventional mowing where people mow, say, once five to seven, eight days, that maintains that balance between one-third mowing, getting our clippings back in, soil microbial breakdown, and it's not near as fast as I make it sound. It's, it's a process. It can be very healthy for the lawn. You don't have as many nutrient inputs where you have to supplement back. The other thing we're starting to look at and study here now, too, is the use of robotic mowers. With robotic mowers, they're going out on a daily or every other day type of schedule. Here the lawns are maintaining and looking like they're always just perfectly mowed, and we're just taking the tips off. I mean, we have less total volume of clippings. The microbes can stay on top of it, and we're actually studying right now, looking to see if that can help reduce some of our nitrogen inputs by just taking the tips, letting them recycle back in, keeping a strong soil microbial activity and less nitrogen inputs. I didn't say no nitrogen inputs, just less nitrogen inputs. What do you think the future of robotic mowing is? I think it's strong and on an upward trajectory. A couple of companies that I've worked with on this have actually 2020, 2021, some of their strongest sales years. I've seen a couple of different models on that, some where the average homeowner owns their own robotic mower. The other is is where you've had some commercial guys that because of labor issues, and that's where I really see the robotics is going to change things, is labor is our number one problem in turf right now in 2022. 
companies will own the mowers and instead of sending out a crew of maybe two or three to do a lawn they're sending out one or two and checking in on the robotic mower but then letting the robotic mower do the mowing and then they're doing some of the edging and pruning and and it's allowing them to redirect some of their labor forces on their accounts in other directions and improving their quality as well i know the technology is getting better and better when it comes to that i think it's going to just continue to increase what are the hurdles you think need to be jumped to keep increasing the robotics Companies are already working on this. The fact that you do have a wire buried out there in your lawn to keep the bower in place is part of it. And I know the technology has moved past for that and trying to get more towards some satellite GPS locating. GPS fencing, I think, is the terminology that's there. That's a hurdle. Not having to have the wire buried around the perimeter of the lawn will be one thing to get over. The other, some of that is is perception. These things aren't particularly big. They're not particularly heavy. And I've had more and more people say, can somebody steal it? Sure, somebody can steal it. But the companies are also kind of working in some things there that they have audible alarms. They're all kind of back to a, an app on your phone. So if they're picked up or raised, you get an alert on your phone thing, and then they may have a GPS location. So if somebody does pick it up and steal it, you can track it. <laughs> Uh, those are some of the things I've heard. The other is, is when people look at them, again, they're not real big. Price point on them, I think, kind of gets folks a little sketchy. And the return on investment seems like it might be a little bit far out there. But the reality is they're not a whole lot more expensive if you went out and bought a new mower. And I hate to sound like I'm selling uh, auto mowers out here. The reality is, is you know, they don't require any fuel. So there's no gas. There's no oil. There's no opportunity for an oil or gas spill. The lawn's always perfectly mowed. I'm more interested in the agronomic side, so the likelihood that maintaining and mowing the proper mowing height, we're returning clippings, hopefully reducing nitrogen inputs, possibly reducing water inputs as well. By not stressing that plant, we'll have deeper, more extensive root systems that can pull water from greater soil depths, possibly make it from one drought event to next or one rainfall event to next, a periodic drought uh, without going off color. So there's some real opportunities out there, I think, for this industry. Price point would be one a possible hurdle to get over. The other is stealing it and then the, the geofencing or the wire buried underneath the lawn at this point. It's, that's all changed. And these are things that a bunch of smart engineers are overcoming. How are they overcoming obstacles that may get introduced into the turf area like limbs or dog droppings? Well, the dog droppings, I'm not sure about, but the limbs are ones I do know about. There's several different technologies on those. One is ultrasound. Is it sending out an ultrasound, kind of like the sensors that are being built on a lot of the modern cars now? Some of these mowers carry the ultrasound, so they sense something, they'll slow up, and they'll kind of bump into it instead of bang into it. And all it takes is a little pressure on it or sensing of it, and it stop and turn around and go a different direction. So that's one reason that these things don't tend to run over our favorite pets out there, little fur babies, because they will censor those. There's some pressure sensors on them. There's ultrasonic sensors. And I'm aware of one company is actually looking at some visual sensors and then some machine learning and AI. So that's uh, artificial intelligence of using visual cameras then to be able to recognize the difference between a ball or a human or a bird bath or, or whatever out there. The mower slow up or move or go around it. The difference between turf and mulch is one that I know one company is looking at such that if you have a bed in the middle of a lawn or landscape, your mower's not running up into the middle of it kind of thing. That It knows the difference. You asked about obstacles, too. The other one I have heard, and it's just dawned on me, several people say, well, I like to mow in straight lines. Most of these mowers right now mow in a randomized pattern or randomized direction. So you don't get that striping or leaned appearance that your conventional mower will have. The average homeowner doesn't realize there is that actually mowing warm season grasses in different directions is better for the grass than mowing it all in the same direction anyway. So from a compaction standpoint, as well as a growth habit standpoint of the turf, that random pattern of, of the robotic mowers right now actually is probably better for the grass than that I go out and I mow at 12 to 6 or curb to front doorstep or whatever it is that, that many like to, to go out and do. 
When you do those patterns with the mowers that we have today, is compaction tend to be an issue? Can be, absolutely. Uh, I see that fairly regular, and especially when you get pinch points in the lawn or landscape. So between buildings or between beds or when you get little thin areas, and the only way to mow the thick area is to ride through the thin area four or five times. You've already mowed it once, but you kind of have to use it as a thoroughfare to get to other spots. We do see the compaction in some of that, and as a subsequent result of that is thin turf and weak turf in those areas. Which sets it up for weeds and things like that weeds and diseases, and it holds water right there at the soil surface. As I said earlier, most of our turf grasses don't like wet feet, so it'll stay wet. Wet conditions root can lead to root decline as well as disease. Dogs in the turf area, what are the challenges that you see there? And is there solutions? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. You've asked me that, and I think I've covered this two or three times this week, as a matter of fact, another with a national writer earlier. Historically, we've kind of looked at that, and I still think a lot of it is is very much just a salt burn from the urine and the urea. There has been a study, and I need to go pull it back out, but it was about two, three years ago a study came out, and actually said there's some other constituents within dog urine that causes more of the turf burn, and that's really what most of it is, is a leaf burn. question becomes, what can you do with it? You, know, you take the old attitude of the solution to pollution is dilution. So if you can irrigate it or water it, then you can kind of wash it off or dilute that urine to the point where it's not harmful to the turf. The downside there is you're irrigated every day and our grass doesn't need that. It actually grows better on the dry side than it does on the wet side. It's one of those nice little paradoxes. I had one person say, well, can I just follow around behind my dog with a watering can where they pee? <laughs> Knock yourself out. Go for it. <laughs> I have a little dog, too, and I'm sorry. I'm just not going to follow behind him and, and hose everywhere he goes. The other I tend to see is, and I'm certainly not advocating one sex over another, when I see these, first question I ask is, do you have a female dog? And the answer is generally yes. I would say I hit it about 80% of the time. Little girl dogs like to go in one spot and just kind of dump everything in one place, whereas boys, I guess they're moving their scent all over. A little here, a little there, a little there. You don't have enough typically to burn turf. So more often than not, it's a girl dog thing. If you can, if you can train them to go in different areas or if there's an area that let them out in the morning in the front yard and afternoon in the back, you can kind of maybe distribute it some there too in that respect or something other or train them to go in a different area that's not on the turf. There are some zoysia grass cultivars that are more sensitive than others. Pictures and lawns that I've shown up at that are the most severe from dog urine have generally been zoysia grass. And some of our older cultivars of zoysia grass tend to be more responsive than some of the newer ones. Zoysia grass, that can be a downside to it. I've never seen it kill grass. It certainly will turn it brown or even a strong blonde or golden color. With two or three days, it typically will mow out on it and rebound and recover. It's transient, but it can be enough to be distracting. What about tracking? It's kind of like the dogs and their paws have cleats with their claws there and seem to track in the same spot. Have you heard any good solutions for how to break those habits? I don't. I'm not a good dog trainer. Everything I've gotten with my dog, I've done with cheese. I swear you could build a space shuttle with cheese if I taught him how to do it. I don't. And we do talk sometimes about how we get homeowners that they're looking to put in a new lawn in the backyard. They've got large dogs. There we do talk about grasses that have rhizomes and stolons and have a strong recuperative potential than others. So I wouldn't put in something like a St. Augustine grass or a tall fescue in a situation like that. They're like humans, too, is that they have particular preferred paths and they will wear them out. 
things that you might can do in those situations is get on a chorification program and try to chorate a couple of two or three times a year where we introduce as much oxygen down in that root system, reduce the compaction and grow as many roots as possible and try to stimulate below ground rhizomes and the species that have rhizomes as best we can. Trying to retrain the dog, that's on you, man. Yeah. <laughs> What's the best time of the year to core area? We like to corate our warm season grasses when they're actively growing. When the soil temperatures at the four inch depth are consistently 65 degrees and rising, that can be a little variable across the southeast. It'll be a few weeks earlier in Valdosta, Georgia, than it will be in Atlanta, Georgia. To me, 65 degrees is 65 degrees. It's just a matter of when it gets there. Middle of May would be a good target in June, July, August. With the last one being somewhere probably mid to latter part of August would be a good one. And that way we can get things to cover back up as temperatures begin to fall in September. And then likewise, once we get into August, we're getting less and less sunlight too. So the grass isn't growing quite as aggressively latter part of August, first of September as it was July and first part of August. The recovery is part of that as well. Is that nighttime temperatures or daytime temperatures? Daytime temperatures are going to drive at that time of year. Typically, nighttime temperatures in the latter part of August or September, while they start to fall a little bit, they're not point where they're an issue. Our warm season grasses, as far as it goes with soil temperatures, once they get below 65 and down that 50 to 55 range is when we really kind of see root growth subside on those. That's not going to happen for us in Georgia until sometime October, early November. Daytime temperatures are going to keep things moving pretty good. The sunlight's a large part of it as well. So we get into late August, early September, and we get less and less sunlight is when we'll see a little bit of that transition. The grass will slow and recovery or recuperative potential is much lower. University of Georgia is rural renowned for their research that they do with turf. What are the questions that you're answering with today's research? There's several things that we're working on as a team. One of it is still resource management, and a lot of that comes back into water conservation and water use. We've had a number of scientists through several decades now where water use and water use efficiency in our turf, and that's anywhere from breeding it into the grass itself or actually proper techniques and management practices to improve water use efficiency and what impact those practices have on the grass physiologically. Explaining the why has been a large part of our team's focus from a breeding standpoint. One of our best cases out there right now, it's Tiff Tough Bermuda grass. It's five, six years old. It's been released. That is a turf Bermuda grass cultivar that is about 30 to 40 percent more water use efficient than Tiffway 419 Bermuda grass. And Tiffway 419 is no slouch when it comes to water use efficiency. It's pretty good. We've even improved upon it with Tiff Tough. We've got our colleagues at other universities tried to do the same thing, improving water use efficiency. Similarly, we're looking at turf grasses and trying to work on grasses that have disease resistance built in it. We refer to that as host plant resistance. So we would like to have disease or insect resistance actually built in genetically to the plant. Some of our breeding efforts there are trying to improve that. Even heat and drought stress tolerance. The water use efficiency is part of the drought, but the other would be is heat tolerance as well. Be able to take our summer temperatures on those, especially for tall fescue, for example. So our tall fescue breeding program. And another significant part of our research efforts here at University of Georgia are pest management. Everybody's worried about weeds and diseases and insects, but weeds are certainly a large part of it. Looking at things like herbicide efficacy, so as new products are coming on the market, which species are the best adapted for, what rates, how well they work, what weed spectrum we pick up with them, how to best use them, what times of year, those types of things we do a lot of that research with gives me a nice little segue here. Every two years, we do a turfgrass research field day here in Griffin, on UGA Griffin campus. One of the bigger ones in the country. We typically attract seven, 800 people. 
will be the hottest day of the year because that's when turf grass research field day is. Come see that research yourself. You can see what we're doing. It's our opportunity to open up campus, open up our trials. We mark them off. We're there to talk about them, show them off, answer your questions, that type of thing. Certainly invite your listeners to look on georgiaturf.com. Our last one was in August the 3rd of 2022. And as a team, we're looking forward to getting people here back on campus and show them our active and ongoing research. Yeah, there'll be a lot of new things to learn there, I would think. I hope so. And we've got some new projects, some new grants that's come on. As I mentioned earlier, some of the things with artificial intelligence and machine learning and and those kind of things. We haven't sat still through the pandemic. We're still trying to push those scientific boundaries in turf science. We're still trying to learn what we can. And hopefully that gets transmitted back out to our industry practitioners and they're doing a better job. The way I see it is if they're doing a good job, they're making money, they're providing for their families and the overall economy of the state of Georgia. And that's where my contribution is. What do you wish people would do differently from designing, building, and growing a garden or landscape? Well, if turf is part of it, and I think it should be, you know, some folks refer to turf grass as just that little short green ornamental, and that's fine with me. That doesn't insult me in the least. If there's anything that I'd like to see them do differently with turf, I'll go back with the first two things we talked about. One would be is, is site prep. Let's not let turf be the last thing that you think of in the garden. Let's plan on it as part of the overall garden concept, and that includes soil modification and site preparation for turf. So let's do a good job on that to begin with and not come up short on site preparation. You're going to dig a big hole for a nice tree. I'm sure you've talked about all the horticultural benefits of what twice as deep, twice as big around. You're going to put those kind of inputs in for a tree or shrub or, or anything else. Turf grass is a plant too. It needs that same kind of care on the front end on the site prep, likewise for a species selection. So let's get the right species and right cultivar for that gardener and that landscape. So let's not short circuit those. So let's play it on turf to begin with. It's part of it. Integrate it and use it such that the grass is there and it can be sustainable if we do the right things at the right time. What's your earliest garden memory? Working in the yard with my dad as a kid, whether it was planting shrubs around the foundation of a house or whether it was seed and centipede grass on a lawn in South Carolina. I remember a lot of just getting out and and doing that with my dad. How much just self-satisfaction it comes into at the end of the day, you sit back and what it was and what it is now. Likewise, as I became a teenager, started mowing yards and making money. And at that point in time, I was getting paid $10 to mow a yard. Not only did I think it looked good, but here I've got a homeowner giving me 10 bucks, and and they're pretty happy the way their yard looks too. So making other people smile is part of it. Why did you decide to pursue the horticultural profession? I thought I wanted to be a landscape architect as a teenager, and I went to Clemson with the intent of being a landscape architect, but I'll openly admit that my grades weren't good enough to get into landscape architectural school. So I was accepted as a minor, which was horticulture, and it took one class, really. My freshman horticulture, introductory horticulture class, and I was introduced to horticulture and plant science. That was my thing. I liked it. The science made sense to me. The design aspect, it just didn't have the same passion. It didn't interest me the same. I could do it, probably not on a landscape architect level, but as a landscape designer level, I could probably do it. The science is what really intrigued me. And all it took was one class and getting into the pathways and the biology and the physiology and those types of things was what did it for me. From there, I enjoyed mowing yards and being involved with grass. I worked on a golf course for two summers. And that little short green ornamental just was the one that I really gravitated to. Thoroughly enjoy it. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? I've had a number through the years. And I'm proud to say that I've had some great people. My academic advisor for my PhD, Dr. Burke McCarty, was a huge influence. Former weed scientist here at the University of Georgia, Dr. Tim Murphy, was a huge influence. 
not only were just good colleagues to work with and mentors, but just good people and friends as well on the science side. And then, gosh, as far as it goes with people that I've worked with, with golf course superintendents and sports field managers and commercial lawn care folks, there's been a many uh, individuals out there and across this state and the southeast that I call friends. And I'm hesitant to mention anybody because then I'm going to leave somebody out and somebody's going to say, what about me? I can promise you any folks out here that are listening, if, if you're listening to me, you know you've been a part of that as well. And, and hopefully I've contributed back to you and your career and, and your business as well. What's your most valuable garden mistake? Garden mistake? Yeah. Oh, boy. Some might would say my backyard now, but I'd say it's one of my successes too. I have a hard time letting plants just die. So when folks send me grass for problem solving or whatever, more often than not, it goes to my backyard and just gets thrown down somewhere back there or planted in. And my backyard is is a Heinz 57 of turf grass species. A little weedy at times. I lack continuity, but at the same time, too, I, I like being able to look back there and see them. Most of the time, I know what those grasses are. So seeing the scientific or, or at least the cultivar evaluation back there in the backyard does bring me some satisfaction. But at the same time, those others probably look at it and go, that's a light green zoysia grass next to a dark green Bermuda grass. Is that what you're supposed to do? No, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a quilted backyard, it sounds like. It is. And, you know, there's times where what's the old adage for the doctor is doctor cure thyself. And I have a hard time with that. Things that I would recommend somebody else not do, I will do in that respect. At the same time, too, I enjoy the grasses enough to see them. And and as I said, I have a hard time taking a plant and just throwing it in the trash can. So uh, I'll take it home and stick it in the yard. Do you have a funny plant or garden story, landscape story you could tell us? You know, there's been a lot of site visits and that kind of thing through the years that caused me to look back and kind of laugh at certain circumstances. The ones I always enjoy that to me are funny is, is watching homeowners and people. People don't call me up and say, I have the prettiest yard. Those aren't the calls I get. I'm not a problem solver. And that's what my role is, is to solve problems. I get to see dead yards. Every now and then I get to pronounce one. What are we going to do? You're going to resod it or reseed it because this thing's dead as a hammer and it ain't coming back kind of thing is I genuflect over the top of it. There's a lot of those out there and I laugh at homeowners when they try to show you where the problem is and, and you, you watch their hands and they show you where the problem is. But if you step back, it's things that we reflected on earlier, those buildings and that building shade. The other one I get to hear and I laugh at a lot is I had the prettiest centipede yard 10 years ago. Yeah, no doubt you did. But that maple tree was about as big around as a 50 cent piece and about eight foot tall. Now you have a hard time reaching around the thing and it's 25 foot tall. And you forget about the shade and the roots that affect that centipede grass and why your yard doesn't look good. I'm there to do my problem solving role. But at the same time, you know, I just kind of laugh and folks think that landscapes are static and they're not. They mature just like all of us. I hope we all mature anyway. Landscapes are not static. They do mature and they're going to influence other plants around them. And turf is generally one of the first ones that gets influenced by a maturing landscape. People ask me fairly regularly, what grass do you have in your yard? My front yard was planted in a Tiffway type Bermuda grass whenever we moved into it. Front yard is Bermuda grass. And as I said, the backyard's a, a mutt. And that's by my own volition. Folks will ask me, what's your favorite grass? And I'll reply back to them. So, well, that PhD behind my name allows me to say it depends. <laughs> depends on what the situation is. And I like the educational opportunity of being able to say it depends, but let's put the right plant in the right place. That's where my favorite grass comes is when we put the right plant in the right place. It's there and it's sustainable and performing like it needs to. Whether it's Bermuda grass or zoysia grass or centipede or St. Augustine or tall fescue. If we've got it there and you're putting some input into it, but you're not killing yourself and it's surviving because it's done right. And that's my favorite one. What is your non-turf grass favorite? 
Azaleas from my time in Augusta is just gosh, it's hard to beat an azalea. The show that those things can put on is to me is just breathtaking. So I, I guess I'd say azaleas are some of my favorites. My favorite tree is a ginkgo. That gold color that you get on a ginkgo in the fall of the year to me is just gorgeous. And then I like the fact the botanical side that the, the ginkgo is a, a very old, ancient, historic tree. It's an old species. It's been around thousands and thousands of years. That kind of part of it's kind of cool to me as well. Gosh, I hope I have a long career here at University of Georgia. I'm in my 21st year. I'd like to think I've got another 10, 15 in front of me. Enjoy what I do. I've got a great job. I work with a lot of great people. Can't imagine doing my job anywhere other than where I am right here. I want to keep doing it for this industry in the state of Georgia as long as I can and I'm capable. Clint, tell us how people may connect with you. The best thing is to visit our University of Georgia Turfgrass website. That is georgiaturf.com and spell out Georgia. So it's G-E-O-R-G-I-A. T-U-R-F.com. We do have a Georgia Turf Twitter account, but I'll have to admit that I've been a bit of a Twitter quitter the last couple of years. Perhaps we'll get that re-resurrected here before long. The best way is GeorgiaTurf.com. This has been Episode 109, Healthy Turf Grass Agronomics with Dr. Clint Waltz on the Garden Question Podcast. Thank you, Clint. You're awesome. This is an encore presentation and a remix of episode 49. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.